Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met the, with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, then they left. There's a lot of people who became Christians in this town called Philippi, and Luke knew a lot of them personally. And uh, he's picked out three that he's going to tell us their stories for a particular reason, because it has a big application to our own lives. He's going to tell us what does it look like the Spirit's work in the religious, the Spirit's work in the oppressed, and the Spirit's work in the non-religious. Let me pray for us before we uh, get into this. Jesus, we ask you each week, and we ask you again tonight, to break into our worlds and break into our reality and our little stories and our lives, and show yourself to be who you are, real, powerful, 
holy, merciful. We need all of you. And we will see in in what Abby just read, we will see again that we are so hard-hearted, so close-minded, and we will need your help. So come tonight and help because you are good, because you are kind, because you are love, and because we need it. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, Frederick Beatner, one of my favorites, says that everybody has a tale to tell if they would just tell it. Everybody has a story. All of you in the room tonight have a story. You got a little piece of it. What Disney movie you want to be a part of? Swiss Family Robinson, the correct answer there. Amazing treehouse. Who wouldn't want to live in that thing? You all have a story. You all have a life to be unpacked. You're all worthy of someone sitting for a long time and listening to you tell the narrative of your life. And we can't judge each other. You can't judge a book by the cover. You can't judge a person by outward appearances, right? You got to get to know them. You got to hear their story to really know who they are. Everybody has a tale to tell. If only they would just tell it. Travel back in time with me. Put on your imagination caps. It's the middle of the first century. You have visited a town called Philippi. You're just there for the weekend. It's a Sunday morning. You want to go to church. So you go to the only church that you can find in Philippi. So you go into the lobby, and the first person that you encounter is this old dude, really getting a heavy ex-military vibe from him, kind of a meathead. You shake his hand, and it like crushes your fingers. He's really happy to see you. He hands you a bulletin. You go sit down. Halfway through the service, you're starting to size up the old lady sitting in front of you. You smell her perfume. You notice her Louis Vuitton purse. You see her iPhone 11 Pro. You see her jewelry. And you're like, this lady's rich. Maybe that was her Mercedes out front in the parking lot when I came in. And you get to talk to her during the awkward mingle time. Talk to someone you don't know. And you hear her name. She says, I'm Lydia. And I was one of the founding members of this church. She just looks like an old lady to you. Church goes on, you're leaving the service, you're going back to your car afterwards, and thankfully, for the first time, you meet someone even remotely close to your age. She's young 20s, kind of socially awkward, doesn't seem to have a lot going for her. You're getting the vibe that she's wearing the best clothes she has, and they're not that nice. But she's friendly, and she's welcoming, and she said hi to you. Those are the people that you encounter that morning at church in Philippi when you're just in town visiting. So you're in your car now and you're driving back to whatever world you came from. And you're processing that church, the people you met. Or this past Sunday, if you go to church, if you're a church-going person and you were in a church, think about the people you met. Who sat in front of you or next to you? Who handed you a bulletin? Or tonight in RUF, the person you mingled with. Maybe you're a veteran and it was someone you've never seen before and you're sizing them up or you're the new person and everybody's new and you're sizing them up. What do you do when you meet people like that? The old guy in the lobby, the rich lady, the weird girl in weird clothes. Do we judge? Do we assume and just kind of put together a narrative for ourselves of what they're like? Or maybe... Do you wonder what their story is? Some of y'all are those kind of people. You see people and you're like, I wonder what that guy's story is. Do you walk out of a church and and, and you're thinking, or even RUF, and you're thinking, where has that person been with God? An old rich lady, a founding member of this church in Philippi, what's her story? What has the Lord done for her? How in the world did she end up a Christian in this Gentile village? 
Do you wonder? Buechner says every person has a tale to tell. If only they would tell it. Maybe you could add this, if only we would ask to hear it. Well, the good news is, is if you want to hear these people's stories, Paul has conveyed them to Luke, and Luke has written them down on paper that 2,000 years later we're able to read. And that's what we have in Acts 16. The stories, the tales of three people and where God found them and what he did in their life. And I find this fascinating because I know like you, maybe you grew up at a place where it's like your church was all old people and it was kind of dying off. This kind of forces you to go back and say, wait a second, they were young people one time. They were college students one time. What was college like for them? What were their most desperate moments of their life? What were their sad seasons like? What was confusion like? What were their highest moments like? When did, when did their soul just sing because finally they felt like they knew who they were because they knew who God was? This passage turns the color on to the stories of the people around us. So where do we start? Where Luke does. Luke starts with the old rich lady. Her name is Lydia, and she's the only person in this church whose name we get. And probably because she was somewhat famous, her, her reputation, her name preceded her. Uh, maybe the original audience reading the book of Acts would have heard of her or known her. Um, she's a really successful uh, businesswoman. She got her money in the fashion industry and not like the tables in New York, three shirts for $20, but she sells purple dyes and garments. Thyatira is her hometown. Thyatira, to this day, is known as a place where they have the raw materials, I don't know what it is, minerals or whatever, that produces the color purple in dyes. And so, purple dye was extremely rare, which made it extremely expensive, which made Lydia extremely rich. Just like her customers, rich, cultured, upper crust, elite. That's Lydia. Annoyingly, she is a great person too. She was hard to just dismiss and judge and be like, crusty old rich lady. Um, She was really nice. Everything that we know about her was she was a a genuine person. She would have come up, oh, tell me, who are you? I don't know if she was that old. That was a really old lady sound like. She's, bring it down 20 years from that. She wants to know about you. She'd remember your name. She says, bless your heart. She's really sweet. If you were one of her customers and you had a long-standing relationship with her, she, you would know enough about her life to know she's really religious. You'd be like, man, she's, she's really devoted to this stuff. That's Lydia. But she had never heard anything of Jesus or this movement of these people who were becoming known as Christians, little Christs. She'd never heard of any of that. That's Lydia, and that's the people, those are the, the girls like her. We'll come back to her in just a minute. But perhaps... We should stop and, and just do some connections. Maybe, maybe there's some Lydia's tonight here. Maybe there's some people in the room right now who can actually resonate, not so much with maybe the outer trappings of Lydia, but some of the internal things going on in her. Are you a person maybe with external appearances, you got it going on, you got the King Midas touch? Whether it's the MCAT or the internship or getting to live with your best friends next year because you got in the lease with them or your grades or the girl you got, or the guy you got, everything you do seems to just be successful. You, f- yeah. you would admit, I struggle with pride, but you're trying to squeeze it down. You're trying to just push it back in with modesty. You're working on your pride. You have faith, 
But maybe in the college years, now you're beginning to wonder, what is my faith in, though? Because I feel like I'm just kind of doing this religious chasing my tail, where my faith is in my faith. And when I feel like I believe in God, I believe in God. And when I don't feel like I believe in Him, I don't believe in Him. My faith is in my faith. Or maybe you're wondering, where is my faith in? I don't know if there's an object or a terminus or a bullseye for it. I just have this fuzzy thing called faith, but I don't really know what it is. But you keep coming to RUF. You keep going to church. You can do the Christian lingo in small group. Maybe you have a friend who will not shut up, though, about all that the Lord is doing in their life. And it started to bug you. You're happy for them, but you're also kind of like, okay, enough. I've heard about it. Stop talking about it all the time. And it's made you begin to wonder if she knows him and I know him, why does she see him in this beautiful, compelling, gripping way and I don't? And maybe you started to wonder if you even know God, if if the gospel is even true and alive and vibrant in you, or if you've just been caught up in the trappings of Christianity, the trappings of the church. If this sounds like you, this is Lydia. Lydia found God useful. She was a God-fearer. Um, there, was a, there was, a, I guess, a rule, a policy, like to establish a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue, and, and, and this time there had to be 10 Jewish men in a town to kind of make it worth people's time to establish an assembly. So we can deduce from Philippi there was not a synagogue, so we're thinking, and the fact that uh, when Paul goes to talk to these people, it's all women, Either there was just a lot of women or there just wasn't many people at all. And so they're gathering together, not in a formal church service kind of thing, but having like a little thrown together piecemeal Bible study. That's where she is uh, when Paul and them uh, meet her. And Lydia, yes, she's devoted, but it's kind of more in the way that she finds God useful the way broccoli's useful and drinking milk every day is useful. Does a body good? A little bit of God does a soul good. It's like taking a jog every day. It's just good for me. I feel better about myself, like doing philanthropy. That was Lydia. That was Lydia. Is that you? Well, the story's not about Lydia. The story's about Jesus and what he does with Lydia. So how does Jesus get through to a religious person like Lydia? If you read the Bible, I think it would say, it doesn't say these very words, but I think it would say religious people are the hardest people to save. They're the, they're the furthest from God oftentimes. Why? Because they, they think they got a leg in the, a foot in the door, a leg up on everybody else. They think they're closer to him. They think there's something about them that makes them different from everybody else and therefore a little bit better than everybody else. So Jesus would even say, The religious, the healthy, don't have any, there's no felt need for a doctor, so they never go to the doctor. There's no felt need for a redeemer, a messiah, a savior. But they learn the language, and they can, can, from external appearances, they look amazing. Again, how would Jesus get through to you if that's you? Does he get through to people like you? Does God care about the religious, or does he say, they're self-righteous, forget about them? Leave the healthy outside the hospital and let them just die on their own, whatever. They're not going to come to me. Does he do that? No. What Jesus does to Lydia is interesting, and he'll do it to you too if this describes you as well. Paul goes and talks to her and her friends. 
Paul and his friends go and talk to her and her friends. They're doing this little Bible study. At some point, they apparently ask Paul, what do you think? Or do you have any questions? And I bet Paul is probably, uh, you know, kind of coming a little bit gentle, and he's saying, you know, well, tell me more about what you think about this. And yeah, okay, Ten Commandments, cool. Well, did you know, Lydia, did y'all, have y'all heard that the law is not kind of your staircase to heaven? The law, God's law that you've studied your whole life knowing about, the Ten Commandments, the moral law, that's not a staircase to heaven. That's to show you that you're dead and you can't get to heaven. It's to show you you need God to come down from heaven to meet you where you are in your death and to make you alive. Did you know that? And she said, well, yeah, but what about all these sacrifices and stuff? The temple, back in Israel, they go to this temple and they offer these bulls and stuff to atone for their sins. And Paul says, yeah, but can a bull, can a bull stand in your place before God if you are guilty? Can you bring an animal up here and say, he did it, and the animal dies, and you're like, good, I'm clean now. It doesn't work that way. Paul says, look, all these animals throughout the thousands of years of the temple, the, the bulls, the, the calves, don't you know that was just, that was a symbol that was pointing forward to God himself who would come and stand in the gap and offer himself as a righteous sacrifice for you? Lydia, did you know that? So look, the big point, I'm sure they had a long conversation. The point is, it was just a conversation. It was intellectual discourse. Question, answer. We talked about this a lot. This is what Paul did in Athens. It's what he did in a lot of places. Friends, if you feel like Lydia, my question to you is, are you listening? Are you really listening? How do you know if you're listening? What Lydia is paying attention to changes. Turns on a dime. That's what, that, that's what the passage says that God opened her heart so that she could pay attention to the words Paul was saying. The words Paul was saying is the gospel. She was able to pay attention. Her, her, her attention was shifting from this kind of going through the motions, being a good person, being a clean person, a moral person, and now her attention had shifted to Jesus for her. Jesus with her. Jesus in his mercy. When God opens someone's heart, he opens their eyes. And when he opens your eyes, what you see is not first yourself, it's him. How do you know if he's changing your attention and opening your eyes and opening your heart? And what happens when you start paying attention to God? What happens when you start paying attention to the gospel, listening to it? Here's what happens. And I think this is how you can know, do I really know God? Is he beautiful to you? Is God beautiful to you? Is he supremely relevant to you? Or is he just, I want to make him a higher priority or I want to put him at the center of my life? Or is he supremely relevant? He's not just the center of your life. He's the left side, the right side, the top, the bottom, everywhere. Uh, I lived in Philadelphia for four years. In downtown Philadelphia, right by City Hall, there is a Macy's. And it's like an old school Macy's, like if you've ever been to the one in New York City. Five stories tall, brick, beautiful building. And inside of the Macy's in Philadelphia is the world's largest pipe organ. And they do a concert every day at like 12 for 30 minutes. You can go listen. And it's amazing. So five stories, open air, and like shopping on the bottom. Uh, and I was, um, you can see this video on, on YouTube, but a few years ago, probably six or seven years ago now, 
There was a day, it was the Christmas shopping season, and just Macy's is packed with people, and there's just all these people shifting around, you know, sifting through all the, all the racks, looking at clothes and stuff. And there'd been this thing going around, I think around the whole country at that time, called Random Acts of Culture. I don't know if you've heard of that. But the Philadelphia uh, Philharmonic and choirs decided to do a random act of culture one random Christmas shopping day in that Macy's. It was two or three hundred singers and the pipe organ out of nowhere. All these people are shopping and all of a sudden, dun, 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 and this big building to Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus. And he shall reign for all of that for like 10 minutes. And these singers are interspersed in the shoppers. So you'd be shopping and the person next to you would be singing and all these people in the balconies walk up and just start belting out Handel's Messiah. Guess who those people were paying attention to? The beauty around them. In a sense, in that sense, it's like Christmas. What, what it's all about just breaks in forcefully into the monotony of another boring shopping trip to try to get a size, you know, seven sweater for your aunt or whatever. And Christmas breaks in, it invades, transcendence breaks into the monotony of the imminent. Beauty comes into another busy, stressful day. And it reorients everybody. And guess what? What they're paying attention to dramatically changes and easily. Nobody told them, excuse me, excuse me, put down your shopping stuff and please turn over here and direct your attention to this 300-person choir and world's largest pipe organ playing one of the coolest songs ever written. Nobody had to ask them. Nobody had to twist their arm. It was instinctive. That's what we're talking about when God opens your heart. That's what happens. It is as if music comes in for the first time, Handel's Messiah comes in for the first time in the middle of the monotony of everyday life. Those people were just neck deep in Christmas, the trappings of Christmas, the decorations. Christmas was just decorations, just shopping. And in that particular moment, the real thing comes right in and it sweeps them off their feet, and they get it, and it completely reorients them. That's what happens to Lydia. Lydia finally sees God, and she sees him as beautiful and relevant. She pays attention to him. Now, I got to pause and say something real quick, because you might be thinking, well, then what am I supposed to do? If, you are, if you're sitting here, and you're like, oh, no, I feel like Lydia, prior to talking to Paul, prior to meeting Jesus, prior to the chorus coming in. You're like, well, what am I supposed to do? There's something you should know about Christianity as it's described in the Bible. Salvation is something that happens to you. It's not something you do. The Bible is not a book describing all the steps of salvation. It's describing history. It's a history book. It's telling you what God has done to accomplish your salvation. Salvation is something that happens to you just like rescue is something that happens to you. You don't participate in it. However, if you know your Bible at all, you've probably heard Jesus say a lot of times things like, seek me, come to me, believe me, listen to me. Paul might say, pay attention. You're like, well, then what's the deal? Do I just sit here and grace happens to me? Or do I go do all this stuff that Paul and Jesus and everyone else is telling me to do? I told you a minute ago, are you listening? Salvation is something that happens 
to you, but it is something that God calls you to call out for. And so if you, calling out is not some saving event in your life. Well, that's the magic ticket. Boom, now you'll be saved. Just like calling 911 does you no good. The policeman, the fireman, the ambulance on the other side does good. Calling simply connects you to the resources. He calls you to come. He calls you to believe. He calls you to trust. He calls you to listen. If you're Lydia, here's a to-do item. Risk talking to God tonight and telling him, Lord, I think my heart is closed to you. I think I haven't been paying attention my whole life, even though I've been sitting in the pew. Coming to RUF, talking all this stuff, talking about you. I've been shopping in Macy's, flipping through racks, thinking the decorations were supposed to be what Christmas is about. I haven't heard the chorus. Capture my attention. Speak to me. Save me from myself. That's what you do tonight if you think you're Lydia. And don't doubt for a second that he will come to you. We didn't have time to include it in the passage, but if you have a paper Bible, flip to the words just before what Abby started reading earlier. Jesus is the one who calls Paul to come to this town to talk to Lydia. Paul wanted to go another direction. He wanted to go to Asia and have this big missionary journey. And the Spirit's like, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going to Asia. Pack your bags, you're going to Turkey. And he goes here. Jesus knows Lydia. Jesus has his eyes set on Lydia and he has his eyes set on you too. So even as you call out to him, even as you be honest with him, don't think you're making the first move. What about the slave girl? She's the other character in this. How does the spirit work in the lives of the oppressed? We talked about Lydia and what she's like. What is this girl like and who is this poor slave girl? We don't have a name for this girl because she has no status, no power. Nobody would have known her. So what is she like? Well, she's as bad off as bad off gets. She's got three really terrible things stacked against her. First, she's a slave. That's bad. She, ha- uh, she has no property of her own, nothing to her name. She has no rights. No rights, no freedom of speech, no freedom to be where she wants to be, no freedom to make decisions about what she wants to do with her life, no rights. No control of her own. Even her life is not her own. That's bad. <clears throat> she's a girl. Not a woman. She's a girl. A girl is not a good thing to be in first century Greco-Roman culture or first century Jewish culture in a lot of places. There was, um, you can find, if you read the Talmud, which is a bunch of rabbinic writings from the, you know, 300, 300 years before Jesus all the way up until the... Uh, the time of Jesus. These rabbis kind of wrestling with the Old Testament scriptures and writing down their thoughts about it. There is a prayer in there that had become a custom for Jewish men to pray every morning. Lord God, ruler of the universe, I thank you that I am not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. So here here is someone who is a slave And she's a woman, but she's a girl. And so any status that a a female slave in this culture would have had, imagine what it's like when you're eight or you're nine. Nothing. Nobody cares about your opinion. You have no status. You have no opinion. Anyone's looking to even hear. No respect. And perhaps worst of all, to top it off, the hat trick, 
She's oppressed by an evil spirit. A demon, she's clairvoyant, she, she's intuitive, she, she's able to whatever. People find value in her kind of saying what's around the corner, what's coming next. I don't know if she's a palm reader or an astrologer or whatever, a fortune teller. They've been around since humanity's been around. But she has value to her owners because she's able to kind of see through the fog and people will pay her to say, am I going to get this girl? Am I going to get this guy? Am I going to get this job? What's going to happen with my son? She has great economic value and so she's economically oppressed and belongs to these people and she's psychologically torn. Imagine, imagine the psychological effects of not even being in control of your own mind your own thoughts. That's this girl. She's a slave. She's a girl. She's oppressed. She's mentally torn apart. She's not in the driver's seat. Now, I'm confident nobody in this room right now is thinking, Ben, did you get my diary? It sounds like you're talking just to me. I get it. It seems pretty different. But are you caught up in addiction to a substance to sex, to sleep? Are you in an abusive relationship right now? Has an abusive relationship or molestation from when you were a child just laid heavy chains all over your life for the rest of your life or felt that way? Is your family such a disaster that you feel like you'll never be able to escape it? Is your mind torn apart by mental illness? If that's you, how does Jesus get through to you? Does he talk to you? Does he want to have an intellectual conversation with you, a Bible study with you? Paul, interestingly, does not kind of have the same tactic with this woman that he has with Lydia and her friends. Paul doesn't share the gospel with her. After a couple of days of being annoyed, because she was kind of trolling him. It's like if there's a, street, uh, a preacher at Tate and then there's like protesters there shouting him down. Eventually, that just grates on you. Well, after several days of Paul and, and, and Silas and going around town talking about the gospel, she's always there, but she's saying something true, ironically. These men are servants of the most high God, the living God. She's trolling them. She's annoying them. She's putting comments on everything they do so that people will begin to associate Paul and Silas with her craziness. Or at least, I should say this, whatever is driving her, whatever has captured her is doing those things. Paul doesn't rebuke this girl. Did you notice that? He doesn't talk to the girl. He talks to the spirit oppressing the girl. He names the evil that has victimized her. And, and, and with the power that Paul has as an apostle, which is the power of Jesus, Paul uses that power for her benefit to fight for her, to fight for her rights. And he separates her from what is victimizing her, her from what is oppressing her. I'm sure there were more conversations after that about who Jesus is and what his relevance is to her. But Paul paid attention to the whole person, not just her heart, not just her soul, just like he does with you. You're not, a, you're not a soul walking around in a body bag to God. You are a person, and you have a mind, and you have a heart, and you have a body, and you have a history, and you have struggles, and they matter to God. He accommodates to you. Tim Keller said, Jesus both adapts to you 
and he challenges you. Or as we say in RUF, he meets you right where you are, but he doesn't leave you stuck there. In mental illness, in oppression, in abusive relationships, in the dark cloud of molestation or victimization, Jesus cares about that too. Not just using that as a springboard to talk about stuff about God. That matters to him too. It must matter to his church as well. Whole people must be dealt with. Part of the reason I think is a little bit practical. Um, How is this girl going to pay attention to anything Paul is saying when she is racked and torn in this state? She can't listen. She's not available to listen. She's not all there. Just like Jesus did time and time and time and time again throughout his ministry, his 33 years on earth, Jesus put people at a right mind first. The Gadarene demoniac, Jesus put him at a right mind And then he told him who he was and he called him to believe and to trust. Demon-possessed people. Jesus didn't just say, he didn't just exercise dominion and authority over those evil spirits, but he invited these people after they were sane again to himself. Jesus cared about the social situation, oppression that was around people's necks. He dealt with both and he'll do that with you as well. The doorway for the addict or for the oppressed is not so much logic like it was for Lydia, it's deliverance. It is straight up, unilateral, supernatural deliverance where God just plucks you up out of somewhere you could never get out of yourself and then begins to patiently restore you. The last guy in this situation is this jailer, this Philippian jailer And he's a soldier, and we know he's a soldier briefly because soldiers were the only people who got these cush bureaucratic jobs, these veterans. That was their pension system. Here, just sit in a chair, make sure these guys don't get out of the bars. And we know he's a soldier because when he drops the ball and the prisoners do escape post-earthquake, first thing he does is grab a knife, and he's about to plunge it through his stomach. This is an honor-bound man, a duty-bound man, a gritty ex-military guy whose life runs on the honor code. And he would rather die with some semblance of integrity than be killed by his boss when they come and see you screwed up and all the prisoners just went free. But I get ahead of myself. This guy, something happens before the earthquake happens and Paul and Silas are standing there with no walls around him anymore. He flogs them and he puts them in the stocks and he's there while they're in prison throughout the night singing and praying and encouraging each other about the goodness of God. And you gotta know he had no interest, completely unimpressed, didn't buy any of it, shaking his head. He's like, when are these fanatics gonna shut up so I can get some rest? They were an annoyance to him. And it's only after the earthquake that he begins to pay attention. But the question is why? Did God scare him and say, look what I can do? That's not what's happening in the, in the account. Something happened before that caught his attention. And it's the same with you. If you find yourself to be the unimpressed person, you're here. I'm glad you're here. But you're here just to check it out. Maybe you're here as one last Hail Mary to say, this is a bunch of hogwash. You're not interested. Shaking your head all the time at this stuff. If this is you, how does God get through to you? Maybe he doesn't tell you the gospel, but he shows it to you. That's what he did to the Philippian jailer. How would you talk to this guy about the gospel? He's just not buying it. He'll shut you down in a second. 
He's the ex-Marine. He ain't buying it, what you're selling. So how do you sit there and say, do you have a second I could talk to you about Jesus? No, I don't. Leave. So God shows him the gospel. How do we see this? There was this code. If you're a jailer, if you lose your prisoners, you die. That's how they enforced integrity of the system and made sure you're not getting paid off to let someone loose. This guy was as good as dead when that earthquake happened and the walls came down and nothing is keeping Paul and Silas there. The fact that Paul and Silas remain exactly where they were with no shackles, free to go, no walls, no bars, but they stay put. They have the power now. They hold the cards. It's like in the fight scene when the good guy gets the gun out of the bad guy's hand and then they're like holding it up to his temple. They spare his life. And not only that, they tell him, put the knife away. There's no need for you to harm yourself. No need for you to die. We're not going to go anywhere. We'll stay here as long as you need us to for your boss to come back and see that you did your job and we didn't run away. In other words, saying they didn't return evil for evil. This was the man who had ripped the skin off their back with a flogging. He's the man who put them in the stocks after that. He's the man probably yelling at them to pipe down all night in jail. And their first moment where they hold the cards and they hold the power, they show him gospel. They show him what God does with his power. God holds all the cards in the world. What has he done with his power in your life? Has he cursed you? Has he treated you as your sins deserved? Has he spared you? Has he kept waking you up day after day, blessing you? Has he put you here tonight talking to you? This jailer saw the gospel, and it changed him. That's what produced the question, what must I do to be saved? What a humbling question for an ex-Marine to come and ask these two little missionaries What must I do to have what you were talking about all night last night when I was telling you to shut up? It's real. I believe it. You had every reason to kill me. And you spared my life. You used your power to help me. We end with this story. You've seen Les Mis, probably. If you've seen the Liam Neeson version, there's a scene in it pretty early on in the movie. Jean Valjean is an ex-convict. He is down and out. He doesn't have any money. He barely has the clothes on his back, and he's just been released from prison. Um, He finds this house, and he needs a place to stay over the night and get out of the cold. And it's this bishop's and his wife's house, and they let him in, and they give him a bed to sleep in and sheets and everything. And Jean Valjean gets up in the middle of the night, and he grabs his pillowcase, and he starts putting all of their silverware and stuff in the bag And the bishop hears the the crinkling metal and he gets up to see what's going on and Jean Valjean comes out and knocks him over the head and knocks him out and he runs away. The next day, the police find Jean Valjean and bring him back to the bishop's house and he's out in the yard working and they say, we found this man and his knapsack was full of silver and he was running away from your house and so we're bringing him back here that you can get your goods back and you can file a report. So the bishop, instead of kind of condemning him right there on the spot, the bishop says this. They ask him, did you give him the silverware? He said you gave it to him, but we know he stole it. The bishop says, yes, of course I gave him the silverware. 
But Jean Valjean, why didn't you take the candlesticks too? That was very foolish of you. Madame Gallot, my wife, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them, Jean Valjean? Hurry. Did you forget to take them? And the officer's looking at him just with a twisted head. And he said, are you telling us that he is telling us the truth? Of course. Thank you so much for bringing him back. I'm very relieved that now he can take the candlesticks that he forgot. The officer says, release them. And Jean Valjean has this moment, nose to nose with the bishop. And he says, why are you doing this? And the bishop says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you are no longer bound, belong to evil. With this silver I have ransomed your soul. I have bought you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. That bishop could have evangelized Jean Valjean all he wanted, shared the gospel with him. He could have had a nice little intellectual conversation, ain't getting through, didn't get through. He showed him the gospel. When he had power, he had control, he held the cards, he could have shoved the knife right in him, sent him back to prison for his life. And he responds with lavish generosity. Friends, if you don't know the gospel, that's a picture of the gospel. That is what God does when you stand condemned in front of him. He takes initiative and he, he doesn't just settle the score. He lavishes you with mercy. He does not treat you as your sins deserve because he's treated Jesus as your sins deserve in your place. An old rich lady, a demon-possessed little girl, and an old ex-Marine military jailer who had nothing to do with religion. And Jesus pursued them all and conquered them all. That's the gospel. And he invites you into it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you didn't stop working in the first century in Philippi. We know that to be true. Whether we feel known by Lydia's story or the girl's story or the jailer's story or some other story, Show us to be a God who still pursues, a God who still comes up to us nose to nose and uses your power not to seek vengeance against us, but to release us, to release us from guilt, from captivity, from slavery, from addiction, from confusion. Do that, we pray in your name. Amen.